Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Genealogist Journal podcast. Twice a week, we take a deep look into the interconnecting roots of history and genealogy. I am your host, historian and genealogist, Jenny Finson. Hello, and welcome back to the show. Today, we will explore spooky, eerie, frightening, and creepy details of Halloween in pre-World War I America. One fun way to track the evolution of cultural practices of Halloween is through old newspapers. Today, we will read two articles on Halloween practices from 1909. As always, we have a lot to cover today, so let's get to it. First, I would like to take a moment to talk about the ancient origins of Halloween. The holiday has gone by a few names, one of which is Samhain. Samhain is a Gaelic festival marking the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the winter, or darker half of the year. In the Celtic areas in Britain and Ireland, the year was divided up into light and dark halves. Samhain was considered the new year in ancient Britain and Ireland and was the marker for the beginning of the dark half of the year. Beltane, by contrast, or May Day, May 1st, marked the light half of the year. Samhain is first mentioned in the early Irish literature from the 9th century. The stories tell of great gatherings and feasts. It was when the ancient burial mounds were open. These were seen as portals to the other world. Some of the tales also associates Samhain with bonfires and sacrifices. Now, the Celts regarded Samhain as their new year. In Ireland, on Samhain, all fires were rekindled from a sacred flame, a new fire for a new year. Now that we have established the ancient Celtic origins of Halloween, I would like to move forward in time about a thousand or two thousand years to the early 1900s, right before World War I broke out in 1914. This was a time right before Halloween became overtly commercialized as we know it today. What got me interested in Halloween customs during this time was a scene in the classic movie from 1944, Meet Me in St. Louis. The scene I'm talking about is where the youngest daughter of the Smith family, Tootie, partakes in her first real Halloween mischief by throwing a bag of flour at the door of a scary old man. In this scene, depicting Halloween in 1904, the children of the neighborhood were creating chaos in the streets by having a large bonfire fed with old broken furniture that seemingly neighbors had put out on their porches for the young ruffians. As a historian, I wondered how accurate was this scene? So when I wonder about culture during a certain time period, especially during the 19th and 20th centuries, I first go to my favorite place on the internet, Chronicling America. This is a Library of Congress website, and it has millions of scanned and indexed newspaper images going back to 1777. The best part about Chronicling America is that it's free. Well, I'm sure that our tax dollars pay for the resource, but I don't mind in this instance anyway. So digging online through old newspapers, I came up with some fun late Victorian Halloween customs. The first thing I would like to read is a letter to a news column from the Los Angeles Sunday Herald, the Junior Herald, dated October 31st, 1909. The column is titled Letters to Aunt Laurie from Nephews and Nieces. 
The title of the letter is Amusement Makes Trouble. Boys' good time proves bad for their victims. Dear Aunt Laurie, One Halloween night when my uncle was a boy, he and some of his companions thought that they would have some fun, as they called it. There was a man who lived in the same village as my uncle, a Mr. Phillips, who had gotten a brand new wagon a few days before. This the boys decided to use to carry out their plans. They took the wagon apart and carried it, piece by piece, to the roof of Mr. Phillips's barn, where they put it back together again. It took a long time and much work to do it, but they kept at it until it was finished. Not satisfied with this, they took a carriage apart and hung the wheels on a telegraph pole. They stretched cords across the sidewalks to trip people, rang doorbells, pulled gates from their hinges, and got into every kind of mischief they could think of. When Mr. Phillips looked for his wagon next morning, what was his surprise to see it sitting serenely on top of his barn? Owners of various other articles carried off had quite a time finding them also. This is the wrong way to enjoy Halloween. There are many harmless ways in which just as much pleasure can be had as by the destruction of other people's property or causing unnecessary work. Catherine Bard so the idea that children go out on All Hallows' Eve to create mischief does seem to have some validity, although the writer of the story seems to have a problem with the chaos children can create. The next article I would like to read is fairly long. It is called The Witch's Hour from the San Francisco Sunday Call, dated October 31st, 1909. It acts as kind of a girl's guide to planning a proper Halloween party. Now approaches the witch's hour, when, in hand-in-hand hand with jack-o'-lantern, she is prepared to scamper across the curtain for an interlude of harmless frolic. The black cat is with us again, the bat and the owl. The cauldron bubbles, the chestnuts burn upon the hearth. The Halloween cake gives up its ghostly prophecy of wealth, matrimony, or a life of single blessedness. In a thousand boarding schools, thousand girls will creep down the cellar stairs, holding a mirror and a candle as the hour strikes midnight, looking fearfully for the reflected face which is to tell them of the future. In more than a thousand apartment houses where there are no cellar stairs, Young women will eat an apple before a mirror and hold a candle by whose light they expect to see that same prophetic vision. If it weren't for jack-o'-lantern, the celebration of Halloween might be rather a gloomy affair, for looking into the future in darkened rooms and watching one's fellow chestnut hop away from one of the hearth are not always cheerful diversions, but jack-o'-lantern, the king of the night, is the jolliest of the presiding geniuses. And besides, there is the Halloween feast, a most tempting repast to keep one's spirits from flagging in the midst of the general unloosening of the black arts. Halloween festivities are always very popular with girls and they are possibly for everyone for the celebration of the night has one great advantage in the fact that its mystic rites and ceremonies can be just as well and happily performed 
by three or four persons as by a large number. Naturally, the sort of Halloween entertainment which is arranged for a small gathering is not satisfactory for a large one. It has usually been found that there is more fun to be had by going through the old-time Halloween rites quite seriously when the party is small, while for a large affair, this sort of diversion is hardly sufficiently generally, and instead there is dancing, possibly a Halloween cotillion, a supper with quaint and grotesque flavors. Masquerade parties are also popular for Halloween, especially in girls' boarding schools, and afford no end of fun if the masks are kept on until the close of the evening so that the identity of the dancers cannot be positively known. There are so many Halloween symbols that whether an ordinary dance, a cotillion, or a masquerade is being arranged, there is an abundance of picturesque materials upon which one can draw for decorative materials, favors, costumes, etc. No Halloween mask is complete without its witch, its jack-o'-lantern, black cat, owl, and bat all to be represented in some way or other by the men and girls taking part. Brownies are also Halloween characters. Goblins and fairies of all kinds are suitable guests for a Halloween frolic. Most successful was a Halloween masquerade given at a girls' school last year. Fairyland was boldly raided for the characters, and every girl was asked to come as some one of the little people, either as a historical character or some particular sort of a sprite. The result was not only most amusing, but beautiful as well, for there were elves and pixies, water sprites, fire fairies, cloud fairies, quaint gnomes, naughty brownies, sharp-chinned witches, etc. Queen Mab, Oberon, Tatiana, and Puck were all there, and there was a most charming dryad who set up her tree in a corner. It was made of paper bark and emerged at intervals through a cunningly concealed door. The witches told wonderful fortunes for everybody, and a large witch who occupied a central post stirred a cauldron from which she continually distributed favors the gnomes and brownies roasted the chestnuts on the large hearth, and the fairies danced around their favorite teacher and presented her with three magical gifts. An Italian coral to keep off the evil eye, a good luck penny as a foundation for her fortune, and a pair of rose-colored glasses through which she might always see the bright side of life. These fairies were not the ordinary Tarpaulin and Spangled creatures that we have grown accustomed to hearing designated by that name, but were, as far as possible, faithful reproductions of the little people of famous fiction, the creatures of the Irish woods and bogs, the Scotch highlands and the German forests, as they have been depicted by poets, painters, and prose writers. It took some trouble to evolve the costumes, but not as much expense as might be thought on first consideration, for many of the costumes were made entirely of crepe paper, and in all of them this material entered largely. Black paper was most effective for the witch's costume and for that of the owl and black cat. 
Poor Pussy had quite a difficult time. One of the smaller girls was chosen for this part. Frolic insisted on her going on all because the other guests at the fours a large part of the time, which, in spite of her gymnastic training, was not altogether agreeable. Equally amusing is a dance where the guests all appear as fruits of the autumn. There must, of course, be some liberty permitted in this sort of character costuming, for while it is comparatively easy for a properly built young person to appear as an ear of corn, it is rather difficult for her or him to assume the exact proportions of a tomato. A lettuce girl with full shaded green skirts of crinkled paper and some gracefully arranged lettuce leaves for bodice and headdress is a most fascinating creature. And the grape costume, the autumn leaf costume, the pumpkin vine costume, etc. are all the more attractive. It is usually considered wise for the girl to select fruit and vegetable costumes which are pretty and becoming while the boys, with their customary gallantry, volunteer for the grotesque parts. Squashes, radishes, potatoes, and apples all fall to the lot of the boys. With the vegetable throng, there should mingle a sufficient sprinkling of the traditional Halloween characters. Nothing could be more amusing than the pairing off of such an assemblage. Miss Lettuce and Jack-o'-lantern dancing together followed by the witch and the tomato boy, the grape girl and the owl, picturesque Miss Autumn Leaf and a jolly brownie make up a procession of quaint contrasts. Pumpkin vines and autumn leaves are charming decorations for large rooms in which Halloween frolics are to be held. And there are also paper draperies stamped with appropriate designs which come especially for walls and tables. Large witches, black cats, and owls made of black paper are used here and there among the decorations or perched on chandeliers, lampshades, or over doorways. Jack-o'-lanterns, real or imitation, are the most popular lights for the festivities. If real, they may be set on the table or hung in different quarters of the room. The imitation ones are in the form of lanterns, lampshades, and candle shades. All fruits, vegetables, and nuts are used for Halloween decorations. Branches from nut trees with the nuts still on are the motif of some of the draperies to be found in paper, and cornstalks, tree bark, etc. are all considered suitable. For favors, there are a great number of fascination boxes, baskets, and bundles containing bonbons, and there are ice cups also in a great variety of designs that are attractive and novel. Among the favors which are to be filled with bonbons are a quaint little brown baskets with vegetables of different sorts on the lid, all sorts of fruits and vegetables with many small pumpkins especially noticeable, witches riding broomsticks gaily attired in red and black and brown witches brooms, the broom part of which lifts off, disclosing the box. One of the most attractive designs for the ice cups is the small gilt wheelbarrow filled with vegetables of many colors, among which the ice cup itself is elegantly concealed. There are also cups held by three ears of corn or three radishes or any of the tall thin vegetables. 
There are very pretty place cards made with little vegetables tied up on one corner and some perfectly charming ones having endearing black kittens fastened up in the corner with a bit of yellow ribbon. One of the nicest and funniest favors is the lettuce and pumpkin boy who has a lettuce body and a pumpkin head all made of paper and a curly green cue made of wire twisted with green paper. Old-time Halloween rites include the mirror-gazing, the burning of chestnuts, apple paring, carrying the candle, and cutting the Halloween cake. There are also bobbing for apples and the game of biting the apple, which, however, are not necessarily Halloween sports. Mirror-gazing must take place at midnight. The person who is performing the rite must be alone in the room, which should be dark except for the candle she holds. She eats an apple and looks straight in the mirror as the clock strikes 12. She is rewarded by seeing her future husband's face in the mirror. The other method of practicing Halloween mirror gazing requires even more courage. The girl takes her candle and a small hand mirror and goes alone down the cellar steps. At the mystic hour, she also sees her future husband's face. Burning or roasting chestnuts on the hearth is a tried old custom. The girl names a chestnut for herself and one for the young man she supposed she may probably be her future fate. The nuts then are placed side by side on the hearth. If they burn quietly away together, it is prophetic of a happy marriage. If they pop away from each other, it is a sign that they will not be happy with each other. Whichever one pops away first is the one least devoted. Apple pairing, and pairing is rather difficult. An apple which has a smooth skin should be selected, and a large one is best. It must be evenly paired so that the skin holds together and is about the same width. When finished, the pairing is taken by one end and tossed over the shoulder. As it falls on the floor, it may form a letter. If so, this is the first letter of the Christian name of the one's future husband or wife. Carrying the candle should take place outside the house. This would be, of course, difficult in a city, but in the country or suburbs could be easily managed. Each guest is supplied with a candle, which is lighted, and they start around the house in two processions, the boys on one side and the girls on the other. If they get back to the point from which they started without having the candles go out, they are sure to be married. At small or informal Halloween affairs, the supper provided usually includes sandwiches, nuts, fruits, cider, and Halloween cake. If the affair is more elaborate, salads and ices may be added. Halloween revels are apt to be late and the repast should be rather substantial. Salads made of apples or nuts are particularly suitable, and the ice should be in the form of apples, pumpkins, or nuts. For the more simple Halloween banquet, it is amusing to have plain cakes, ginger cake, and cookies cut out in Halloween shapes. Any girl who read this in 1909 would have been able to put on an amazing Halloween party the next year. Just think about this for a moment. It was only a little over a hundred years ago when many of our grandparents or great-grandparents were running around the streets of their towns causing mischief and chaos. 
teenagers and young adults were spending their All Hallows' Eve at parties and dances dressed in costumes often made of paper. They participated in old magical customs, especially those prophetic in nature. Unfortunately, I do not have any narratives detailing Halloween customs of my great-grandparents. I wonder, did they roam the streets at night throwing flour, burning old furniture, and creating general mischief? How about you? Did any of your ancestors participate in the holiday fun back in the day? What stories of family customs can you find? If you liked what you heard here today, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify to hear all of our episodes. Also, check out our website at genealogistjournal.com. Join our community for access to more content, genealogical tips, and dynamic genealogical and historical conversation.